Acts 3, 12 to 19. Seeing this, Peter addressed the people, you Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why are you staring at us as if we made him walk by our own power or piety? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is the one you handed over and denied in Pilate's presence, even though he had already decided to release him. You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you instead. You killed the author of life, the very one whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. His name itself has made this man strong. That is because of faith in Jesus' name. God has strengthened this man whom you see and know. The faith that comes through Jesus gave him complete health right before your eyes. Brothers and sisters, I know you acted in ignorance. So did your rulers. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Change your hearts and lives. Turn back to God so that your sins may be wiped away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, thanks, Deanne. Uh, that is Deanne Davis. We talked about her a couple weeks ago, but it is good to see her and hear her voice read the Acts text for us. Deanne's the one who has joined us in, on our online community uh, from Arizona, and we're so glad uh, to have Deanne as part of our of our congregation together. The gospel text also comes this morning from Luke, from Luke the 24th chapter. I'd invite you to turn there, Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. And if you're able this morning, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. This is Luke 30, 24, 36 through 48. While they were saying these things, meaning the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were terrified and afraid. They thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you startled? Why are doubts arising in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. It's really me. Touch me and see, for a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like you see I have. As he said this, he showed them his hands and feet because they were wondering and questioning in the midst of their happiness. He said to them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of baked fish. Taking it, he ate it in front of them. Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And a change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this morning, I want to take these two texts, Luke and Acts, and think a little bit about what, what is different in them, but what, what they have in common. And you may have noticed, as you heard Deanne read Acts, and I'd invite you to turn in your Bible, by the way, to Luke chapter, or to Acts chapter 3, and to keep something in Luke chapter 24. But you may have noticed some common language in both of them, both the language of change your hearts and lives, but also this language, you are witnesses. In fact, the title for this season, or as we go through these Easter texts we have chosen, is 
you are witnesses. We are witnesses. I, I was thinking this week, what are the things that, that we have witnessed in our life? Um, I don't know why, but uh, a lot of my favorite things that I've witnessed in my life are s- sports-related. As I've shared with you before, I love sports, and I think it's because I'm such a bad athlete. Um, I'm just kind of envious of others. Some of my favorite things that I've witnessed and related to sports have been uh, kind of basketball-related. So one of my claims to fame is that um, as a teenager, I was a senior in high school, and there was a, a university coach who lived across the street from us who, um, who sold T-shirts in 1984, the year that uh, the Final Four was held in the kingdom in Seattle. And so he talked me into working for him for a week and selling T-shirts. And my reward at the end of the week was I got to go to the final game in the kingdom on April the 2nd, 1984. The classic game between Georgetown and Houston, Patrick Ewing versus Akeem Olajuwon. Yeah, that's right. I was there. On March 13th, 1998, we were living in Oklahoma City, and I went to the regionals in Oklahoma City, and I was at the game where Bryce Drew, um, if you... If you're a basketball fan, Bryce's brother coached the team from Baylor that won the national championship this year. And I know that broke your heart, but it did help me win the church pool. Um, I chose with my head and not my heart. Um, but I was at the game where they were, play- they were a 12 seed and they were playing the four seed, uh, Virginia Commonwealth. And there was 2.4 seconds left in the game and they were down by two points. And they threw the ball two thirds of the, of the court One player grabbed it and tipped it to Bryce Drew, who hit a three-pointer right at the buzzer to win the game for Valpo. Everybody rushed onto the court. They show it every year when they do the sort of pre-stuff, all the videos of all the kind of fun March Madness. It's always there. And every year when they show that, I say, I was there. I was there. I'm pretty sure they're going to take that clip out this year and put the, the Gonzaga clip in probably. But on March 21st, 2014, Uh, The three boys, Caleb, uh, Noah, and Joan and I were at the NCAA Regional in San Diego when we got to see another 12 seed upset of four seeds. The Stephen F. Austin Lumberjacks beat the, again, Virginia Commonwealth Rams in overtime. Oh, no, it was against the the other game. I'm sorry, it was against Old Miss. But they beat Virginia Commonwealth in overtime. And my favorite part of that was not only that it was just the four boys, but it was so much fun. Stephen F. Austin, they were so shocked that they won that the guys didn't change out of their warm-ups, and they just kind of roamed the arena taking pictures with everybody. And we had these great pictures of the boys with the players. It was awesome. May the 2nd, 2015, Caleb and I were at Game 7 of the Clippers versus the Spurs when Chris Paul hit this amazing hook shot running down the lane and won the game, one of the first times the Clippers have ever won, maybe the last times the Clippers have ever won a playoff series. But here's why that day is so important to me. It was so much fun to be there and have the people go crazy. But on May the 3rd, the very next day was the day you guys as a congregation announced that in two weeks you'd be voting on us as candidates for this to come. And so I was so excited about the game, but I was fielding calls from people as gossip got out. Um, I'll never forget that game. Some of my favorite moments are also related to baseball. May the 6th, 1982. My dad and I were there when Gaylord Perry won his 300th game, 7-3, against the despicable and hated Yankees. Part of the reason I remember that game so well is uh, my dad and I would go to a lot of games, but that was just so meaningful to be there uh, when Gaylord Perry won his 300th. And also, I think it was one of the only times the Mariners won when we went to a game. June 29th, 1990, I 
brought the youth group. So after I graduated from here, I went home to be youth minister at Seattle Aurora. And I took a, a group of teenagers to Los Angeles to do a work and witness project. We did a lot of work around the Brazil church, etc. But one night, I got us all tickets to go to the Dodger game. And it was incredible. We went to the Dodger game. And we just happened to be there on the night when Fernando Valenzuela was making a comeback. And he threw the only no-hitter in his career. Six to nothing. Or two to one. No, no, six to nothing against the Cardinals. But my favorite part of that was we were freaking out. Everybody was freaking out. Fernando mania everywhere that Fernando had. But I just remember some of the girls in the youth group going, what happened? What happened? And we were like, Fernando just threw a new hitter. And I just remember this one girl saying, I saw him. I saw people hit the ball. Um, it was, yeah. <laughs> one last one. Uh, one of my favorite moments. Uh, June the 17th, 2014. I happened to be in Boston uh, for a meeting uh, with the denomination and some folks, and my good friend David Busick was there as well, and we were having this committee meeting, and the district assembly was going on on, that, on the campus of Eastern Nazarene College at the time, but David wasn't the presiding general. And so our meeting got out on Tuesday afternoon, and I said, David, we have the whole night free. I'm getting us tickets to the Red Sox. And so I got us two great seats. We got to go to Fenway Park, and we got to see them uh, beat Minnesota 2-1, to one, and we had this great night at Fenway Park. But I said to him while we were at the game, hey, we both have to fly back, we both fly to Los Angeles because David was actually the presiding general for the Los Angeles district, and district assembly didn't start till Thursday. And I said, David, we're going to get in about 4 o'clock. I have tickets to the Dodger game tomorrow night. Let's go see the Dodgers. So this is awesome. I know you're not excited about this, but I just really have to get this off my chest. It was so great. We saw the Red Sox on one coast play, and the very next night we're in Dodger Stadium watching the Dodgers play. And here's the best part. At the game, Clayton Kershaw threw the only no-hitter so far of his career. And not only that, he struck out 15 batters that night, which is a record for the Dodgers. So I know you're not excited, but I was there for all of that. And if he gave you some time, I could think of a few more. By the way, I was there the night NNC and College of Idaho got in a fight. But that's another story. <laughs> I've been at some cool sporting things. I've, I've seen some other cool stuff. I mean, like, you know, I witnessed three of our four children's births. That was nice. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I've been with more people than I expected to be when I, I pursued a call to ministry. I've been with more people when they breathe their last breath than I expected to. I've been present um, in the moments of people's tragedies much more than I, I dreamed I would be. We witness things. And these two texts, again, are joined by the word witness. Again, in Acts chapter 3, Peter proclaims, you killed the author of life, the very one whom God raised from the dead, and we, we are witnesses of this. Ouch. In Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus declares, A change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you, this is very positive, you are witnesses of these things. You see, the first one, Peter's statement about being witnesses in Acts, is really a statement, and frankly, a statement of condemnation. We, we saw what you did. But when Jesus uses that very same phrase in Luke 24, it is not a statement of condemnation. condemnation. It is an invitation. It's an invitation to not only see and experience, but to be a reflection 
of something new and different and transformative in the world. So if you have your Bible open to Acts, go, go to Acts 3 with me. When Peter says, what have you witnessed, or what he has witnessed, what is it that he has witnessed? Let me step back just a little bit because it's unfortunate that the lectionary just kind of drops into the middle of a story. So Luke, in telling the story of the early church in the book of Acts, has a kind of pattern that we'll see over the next few weeks. And the pattern usually goes like this. Something happens, usually good, sometimes bad, but usually something of the display of God's spirit or power is poured out. And and so here's what happened in Luke chapter 3. Peter and John are headed to the temple one day. And as they're headed to the temple, they encounter a man who is dropped off day after day after day at the gate beautiful. And he's dropped off because the text says he has been unable to walk since he was born. He's disabled. Now, this is not the way we would view this today, but in the first century, as we can see in texts, for example, where disciples asked um, Jesus about the blind man, who sinned, this man or this man's parents? There was a tendency to see disablement as some kind of punishment from the hand of God, either on the person or on the person's family. And so it is very likely that this man who's dropped off at the gate day after day has never entered into the temple. He's not allowed to. He's not able to. But he sits at the gate and sees those who are able to enter into life, enter into worship, enter into the temple, And he asks them day after day, begs for the means to just be able to get by for another day. As Pastor Grant powerfully talked about early this morning um, in our sacred rhythm service, that day he calls out to Peter and John. And rather than just handing him a gift of charity, they they stare intently at him. They look at him. They see him. And he, and then Peter says to him, look at us. They see him and he sees them. And Peter, in that beholding of one another, says, listen, I don't have any money. But I have something far better that I can give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And he lifts him up and his ankles become strong. His legs are healed. And this is so cool. Rather than skip and run home, he skips and runs right into the temple, dancing and celebrating and giving God praise. The one who's been excluded is now included. The one who's never been able to enter and enters and enjoys the power of the risen Christ that work in this man's life. And here's the pattern that Luke tends to follow. Something happens and a crowd pays attention and is drawn. And you, when you're a preacher, you never want to waste a crowd. And so Peter says, you want to know what's going on? Here's what's going on. He preaches the sermon to them. The Christ you rejected has risen, and it is in his name that this man walks and celebrates and worships. But Peter says, listen, here's here's part of the message. Here's what we have seen. (laughs) By the way, The rest of the pattern is somebody preaches a really long sermon, and sometimes it goes well, and a lot of times it does not go well. But what does Peter witness? Peter says this is what he saw. 
he saw God reveal God's self in Jesus, and he saw that witness rejected. He saw not only rejection, but violence enacted upon that revelation. He saw a massive failure on the part of the religious leadership to respond faithfully to this revelation of God. And every time I read this, I always want to be a person in the crowd that goes, <coughs> Peter. Um, let's not forget, um, you weren't exactly a good guy in this story either. Part of Peter's witness is his own failure, weakness, faithlessness. Which raises the question for me, what have we witnessed in just recent days? I sat down to kind of put together all the headlines from this week, and as I was putting down everything that we've seen, even just in the last seven days, what struck me was how similar what we've seen in the last seven days is so similar to what we saw the seven days before that and the seven days before that and the seven days before that. That there seems to be this pattern of what we witness in the world, another act of, of mass violence. Acts of violence, injustice, or misuse of authority against people of color. Moral failures of public or religious leadership. An environmental disaster occurring or at least being heightened because of our misuse of creation. Some form of exploitation of the rich over the poor. Some form of objectification and misuse of the vulnerable. Wars, rumors of wars or political posturing in preparation for the possibility of war. Significant human needs that we could care for being overlooked because we're far more interested in playing political games of power and the transitions of power than caring for people's needs. A culture that too often celebrates and elevates the wrong values and the people who embody them. We have seen all those things this week. We're witnesses of them. And unfortunately, we saw them the week before, and the week before, and the week before. What Peter has witnessed is a very broken, sinful, and violent world. The participation of the religious systems in that sinfulness and brokenness and if he's honest, his own personal complicity with that brokenness. He has witnessed it. He has seen it. He knows it to be true. If that were the end of his message, and by the way, if that were the end of mine, eh. However, our texts proclaim that something else is also at work. In the text. If you will, something else is on the loose. I found a quote this week from G.K. Chesterton, and I was so sad about it for two reasons. I needed it two weeks ago on Easter. And also, it's the exact same thing I said, only so much better. But here's what Chesterton says about Easter. On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder I love this line, that the world had died in the night. 
And what they were looking at was the first day of a new creation. Oh, yeah, he steals my stuff all the time. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of a garden, of a gardener, God walking again in the garden. Only this time in the cool, not of the evening, but of a brand new dawn. Chesterton. So good. So if you'll go back to Luke with me. Luke, like John in our text from last week, describes the resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples in narratives that sound like worship services. So if you were with us last week, I said to you, as the gospel writers close out their gospels, especially Matthew, Luke, and John, they tend to tell these stories about Jesus' appearance in ways that help us to think about how do we continue to gather together. And so they're drawn together. They gather together. Jesus is in their midst. He speaks peace to them. He opens the scriptures and tells them about how everything they've seen and experienced fits within the scripture. And then they have dinner together. They gather around the table and eat, and then he blesses them and sends them into the world. And he does that again in Luke. In fact, my frustration with the lectionary this week is it took a text that is the exact same story that we told last week in John, only now from Luke. So I was tempted to preach the same message and see if anybody noticed. But but what's unique in Luke is Luke tells almost the exact same story we saw in John's gospel last week is this. Commentators point out Luke goes to almost comical proportions to describe the physicality of Jesus. So Jesus shows up in their midst, and they are freaking out a little bit. He says, why are you so astonished? I'm here. Take a look. And I'm not a ghost. Chuck out my hands and my feet. And they're able to experience him and see the resurrected one, the physical one. (laughs) And then this is the best part of the text. You got any food? Sunday morning, there's got to be donuts somewhere in this place. Got any food? Yeah, we got some fish. And he sits down and eats. The New Testament accounts of post-resurrection appearances testify to a risen Christ who is embodied, but in a body both continuous and discontinuous with his earthly body. The risen Jesus is embodied, but his body is different. A glorified body, an eschatological body, an eternal body appearing in temporality. Now, you're not excited about that, but this is what that means. The gospel writers are very particular to let us know, first of all, that Jesus was not a ghost, an apparition the spirit of Christ come back from the dead. Because if that were the case, then that would mean here are our hopes. Our hopes are someday we'll get rid of this body and get to get out of here and go somewhere where our spirit can be happy. Which sounds an awful like like the Platonists of the first century or some other kinds of religious traditions, but that is not the way Jewish people understand what God is doing in the world. And so when Christ is resurrected, notice this. He's got a body. Take a look. Let's have some food. But notice this. In the story right before this, where Jesus appears on the road of Emmaus to Emmaus, disciples kind of don't recognize him at first. But then he breaks the bread, and now, whoa, it's Jesus. So hang with me here. The body of Jesus is 
recognizable as the body of Jesus, but it's also very different than the body of Jesus. So what the New Testament writers seem to be commentating is this. What Jesus has initiated or inaugurated into the world, the resurrection that has broken in a new creation, is connected with the old. It's not a dismissal of everything that has been. So if you haven't been listening for six years, listen, God said, this is good stuff. I don't want to just get rid of it. So it's connected to the old, but it is radically new. It has put so much of the old to death, and it has brought to life a whole new way of existing in the world. And so in some ways, Peter says in his sermon in Acts, I can tell you about the old. The old is full of brokenness and sin and violence. Oh, by the way, and your religious folk, your participation in that. Oh, and by the way, mine too. I, I know that. I've seen the old. But the power at work that gave strength to the disabled man and an ability to enter into the temple dancing and praising and singing, that same power that brings newness to this man is the same power that Jesus enters into the midst of the disciples and says, hey, there's something new here, and now here's the cool part. You are witnesses of this. Oh, that's good. This power of the resurrected Jesus at work in the book of Acts is revealed in moments like this healing. And resurrection faith is not an idea or a philosophy, but a new reality lived out in the materiality of the old world. See, this is why it's, this is why it's not a good idea to be a Nazarene. I've said this to you before, but this is really important. I'll pick up my mom for a minute. It was her birthday this week, too. When you're a Nazarene, you can never say this. Well, that's old Barbara. If you knew her parents, if you knew how her children treat her, (laughs) oh, if you knew all that lady's been through, bless her. By the way, this is a very important church tip. If you say bless them, then you can say whatever you want. <laughs> oh, Barbara, bless her heart. And then now you can say whatever you want to say. <laughs> You're laughing because you know that's true, right, Gage? Bless them, bless them. We'll talk later. Um, here's the thing. Like, we can say, oh, oh Barbara, you know, we all have to kind of work our way around her. Here's the problem when you're a Nazarene. This is a whole newness, sanctification thing. Our whole problem is old Barbara can be new Barbara. Old you can be the new you, changed and transformed by the love and mercy and grace of God. So Peter's preaching to this group, not just because he's got a lot of anger he needs to get off his chest about how these religious leaders treated the Lord and Messiah. And he's been a witness to this whole thing. He's not saying that simply just to get some anger out. But he's proclaiming what has been in order to say, now change. Be transformed. Change your hearts and lives. 
for newness, the same newness that allowed this man to walk, is at work here and can change old you religious leaders into new you, disciples of a risen Lord. So Jesus invites the disciples to be witnesses of these things, of the new things, the inbreaking reality of the new creation. So if you have Acts open, the most devastating line to me always in the sermon is this. It's in verses 14 and 15. Where Peter says, you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you instead. You killed the author of life, the very one whom God raised from the dead. Every year when we go through the Lenten season and we hear and in some ways embody the passion narratives, the moment that always gets me is when Pontius Pilate says, I really don't find any fault in him. And I tend to read that text as though Pilate's saying, in fact, there's a lot of things here that I find quite fascinating and actually may be helpful to us. But I don't know what to do with him. He speaks a different language than I'm used to in the principalities and powers. He embodies a different alternative. It's just confusing to me. I don't know what to do with him. But you, religious leaders, you should know. Who do you want? Do you want him or do you want Barabbas? Barabbas, probably the zealot, who embodies a religious way of doing everything the world does only religiously. Participate in anger and violence, keep cycles of bloodshed and brokenness and division, continue to get those going, hoping someday at least God will side with us and we'll get rid of those people. So who do you want? You can have Jesus, new life, new creation, new hope, new ways of living in the world, or you can stick with the old Barabbas. What do you want? Door one, door two. And I hate when we get to that moment and all of those religious folks shout in unison, Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! Oh, oh I hate that. Now, Peter in his sermon says, I'm going to give you a break. For perhaps you were acting out of ignorance, the text says. Jesus on the cross says, forgive them. They are just clueless. They don't know what they're doing. So perhaps you are acting out of ignorance. Again, if I'm Peter, I want to say, I did some ignorance too. But now you know. Now you know. Pastor Grant used a great illustration this morning. He has two little ones and he said, you know that moment almost every parent has had where you walk into a bedroom of one of your little ones and they've decided now is the time to decorate all the walls with stickers and crayons and sometimes permanent markers? You know what would make the dining room table look really good? Let's glue these pictures on it. Come over, we'll show you the marks. Um, as Pastor Grant said this morning, when you walk in, there's a part of you that goes, ah! But then you realize, oh, man, they don't know any better, right? Like they're still ignorant. You, you correct them, but you don't really get angry at them because they're, they're acting as a child would act. 
But if you come home one day and your 27-year-old is at your house crayoning on the wall, putting stickers on the wall, you go, ah, and then you also have a very serious talk. Because no longer are you acting out of ignorance. Now you're just, call somebody, we need help. So Peter says, maybe you're just acting out of ignorance, but now you're not. You've seen, you see right now the new creation work in the power of the name of Jesus that made this man able to walk. You see this newness breaking in, but now you're getting to choose again. Which one do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? Do you want to go with the new creation? Do you want to stick with the status quo? Which one do you want? Which do you want? What scares me, both personally, but for us as a people, are all the ways, and these days have been days, um, continue to be days, where we continue to learn about all the ways the world is broken, and if we continue in that brokenness, there's nothing but kind of sadness and Violence and shame out ahead of the world and its history. And we are not people who are ignorant of that. We are people who know there is another way to live and to breathe and to act and to respond and to love. And so church, what do you want? I'm convinced part of the reason the church, at least in our cultural context, is losing so many of its young people is because so many young people see the church screaming Barabbas. We'll take Barabbas. We know we could live differently. But we prefer to act like the old. We'll take Barabbas. There's an old prayer that Mother Teresa would pray that I, I learned as a college student that I love an interviewer asked her, Mother Teresa, when you go out into the streets of Calcutta each day, how do you do it? Like, how do you, how do you care for those on the margins, the poorest, the, the sick, the desperate? How do you do that? And she responded by saying, every day I pray the same prayer as I head out into the streets. I pray, oh God, help me to see your son. Help me to see Jesus. And this is the line that gets me. Help me to see Jesus in all his distressing disguises. I love that line. When the Spirit reminds me, I try to pray that same prayer each day. God, help me to see you in all your distressing disguises. But this week, as I've thought about this text and I've thought about our life together, I'd, I'd like to twist Mother Teresa's prayer just a bit and say what we need and what the church needs desperately is not just the eyes to see Jesus in all his distressing disguises, but that God would give us the ability to see, Bar to see Barabbas in all of Barabbas' disguises. In all the ways, moment by moment, day by day, historical event by historical event, the church is shown opportunity to say, what do you want? It's not that you don't know what's going on in the world. You're, you, like Peter, are witnesses to those things. But what do you want? 
Barabbas or Jesus, old creation or new, status quo, or the faith to live into something that gives life. God, help us to see all the ways that we scream Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. God, help us today. We are witnesses to the brokenness in our world and in ourselves, in our community, in our families. And sometimes we stay in that brokenness because we're just kind of ignorant and we didn't know there's another way we could live. But by your grace, you continue to reveal to us, you do not have to stay there, friend. You can live in the fullness of life. In fact, as the very next verse says, times of rest, times of newness come to those who live into this life. So help us. Give us the eyes to see Barabbas in all of his distressing disguises. And give us the eyes to see you inviting us to be witnesses of a very different way Thank you for what you're doing in and through us by your spirit. May those all around us know that there is a living, active, powerful, renewing, redeeming, sanctifying, transforming spirit at work in our midst, bringing life out of death, bringing light out of darkness, bringing grace and mercy and newness and holiness out of sin. May they see that and know that and be witnesses of it because it is reflected in our lives. May that be true. May that be true of us, disciples of your son, Jesus. Build our life on Jesus today, we pray. For it's in his good, powerful, transforming name that we pray. And God's people said, amen. Stand with me.